Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have, surprise, another amazing guest on the show. We have a Dr. Hannah Power who is an Associate Professor of Coastal and Marine Science. Some very cool things there. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hannah. Thank you, Amelia. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure already. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? That's an easy question. So my job is an Associate Professor and I work at the University of Newcastle in New South Wales, Australia. And my job involves two main things. It involves doing scientific research and it involves doing teaching. And they're sort of, it's roughly split half-half. And my research looks at the processes that drive change in our coastal and marine environments. So the different things that change those environments and how those environments are changing through time. And then I do teaching in the same kind of stuff. I teach everything from introductory earth science at first year all the way to specialised courses in coastal science right at the end of people's degrees. That sounds pretty cool. So you're currently doing your own research as well in coastal and marine like changing processes? Yeah, exactly. So I've got a few different research projects going on at the moment. So one of them is looking at what drives how far up beaches waves get. So when you go down to the beach, the waves wash back and forth across the beach. And that process is called swash. That's the technical term for it. And one of the things that we're trying to understand as scientists is what drives some of those waves to get further up the beach than others. And that's really critical because uh, during storms, we see waves run up really high up the beach and they start to erode the dune systems. Or if the sand dunes are not very high, the waves might wash over the top of the sand dunes, and that can obviously cause really significant problems for any infrastructure that exists there or the ecosystems that survive in our sand dunes. So that's one project. Also got another project uh, with one of my PhD students looking at what drives changes to our coastal ocean water levels. So we know most people know that the water level along our coast goes up and down with the tide, but what you might not realize is that the water level that we experience along the coast is not always exactly the same as the predicted tide. So you can look at a tide forecast and say, you know, this evening the high tide might be 1.8 metres, but the actual water level might be higher or it might be lower. And we're looking at the processes that drive those differences between the observed ocean levels and the predicted tide levels and trying to link them to things like uh, storms and also large-scale climate drivers like El Niño and La Niña. I also do a lot of work in tsunami, and we've got a couple of projects at the moment going on looking at tsunami that are generated by underwater landslides. So we have these massive underwater landslides that happen, and then they generate tsunami that then move outwards from there and they can impact our coastal regions. There's some fascinating things, and I think for obviously mostly the coastal people listening, but they're really particularly interesting because they're all things that we see and can interact with. Like, have you got any examples of, you've asked a lot of questions, basically, you're looking at a lot of questions. Have you got any answers that you can share with us? Yeah. So one project that I worked on between four and three and four years ago was a project where we worked with uh, scientists from the New South Wales state government and people who work for National Parks and Wildlife Service. And myself and my colleagues worked on this project to generate a wave risk forecast tool for 
site in the Royal National Park just south of Sydney called Figure Eight Pools. And this site became famous on Instagram and it went from being a sort of small spot that only people who did lots of bushwalking and outdoorsy type stuff knew about. So, you know, maybe had a couple of thousand visitors across an entire summer to being Instagram famous. One of the things that you did when you came to Sydney, you know, you got your photo by the Opera House, you got your photo at Bondi Beach, and you went and got your photo at Figure Eight Pools. And it's this beautiful site with this sandstone rock platform above the water level. And it's got these big, deep rock pools that have been ground down into it. And lots of them are really circular. And in one spot, two of these circles have joined together to make a figure eight shaped rock pool. But that change in visitor numbers also coincided with a change in visitor demographics. So the people who were visiting were tourists who weren't really familiar with the outdoor environment that we have here in Australia necessarily, or that particular site. And so they were going down there in conditions that were really hazardous and the waves were washing over the top of the platform and knocking people over and people were experiencing things like broken limbs and head injuries. People have also been washed off the platform. So what we did to solve this or to help address this issue was to collect a whole lot of data about when the waves were washing over this rock platform and what tide that coincided with. So did it occur on high tide or low tide? And what sort of waves we had in the ocean at the same time. So how big did the waves have to be to start to wash over that platform? And when they started to wash over that platform, how hazardous was it? And we used data from an observation period of about eight months to create a tool that allows National Parks and Wildlife Service to predict when the platform is going to be safe to visit and when it's hazardous to visit. And the results of that project are are now available in a tool on the National Parks and Wildlife website where you can go and you can see a four-day forecast of what the hazard at this site is going to be. So is it low hazard or is it high hazard? And that project has ultimately resulted in safer visitation to this beautiful site. And, you know, it's a great example of how science can be used to help community safety and to communicate the outcomes of the work that we do. That's such a fantastic, like, well-encapsulated project. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a great project. And I think it was particularly well encapsulated, as you say, because it was problem driven. There was a problem there, it needed to be solved, and we used science to solve it. And it's a great example of how science can really benefit society. Nice and clear cut and people can see it. Yeah, exactly. How did you measure the waves? How do you, well, how do you measure a wave in general? Yeah, so great question. So depending on where we want to measure waves, we do it really differently. When we look at wave forecasts or when you, for example, look at what the marine forecast is, when you, you know, maybe you look at the weather forecast and you also look at the marine forecast and it says swell that's going to be this big and waves that are going to be this big, that's based on really big models that are developed using observations from wave buoys. And these are buoys that sit out in the ocean and they have a GPS in them and they're measuring their position. And then they convert their position into a, how big the wave is. So they you know, bounce up and down on the surface of the ocean and they can measure how big the waves are. In shallower water, those instruments tend to be really quite big and we tend to use smaller instruments. So in shallower water, when we're measuring particularly broken waves, so in the surf, we use instruments called pressure sensors and they measure the pressure. And we put them on the bottom of, on the sand, underneath the water, and As the water gets deeper, the pressure increases, and as the water gets shallower, the pressure decreases. And these instruments might measure 10 times a second, 
and then we can convert that into a record that tells us how big the waves are. And similar kind of uh, systems are also used to pick up tsunami in the deep ocean to feed into our tsunami warning systems that we have around the Pacific and Indian Oceans. For that particular project that I was talking about earlier, though, we actually used a different method primarily. We used video cameras because we were interested in when the waves were washing over the platform and how far they were getting. So we set up these cameras to capture video footage of this rock platform. And waves are really easy to see in video because they have those white, breaking, foamy fronts. And so we could pick those waves up against the darker colours of the rock platform and see how many waves were washing over and how far they were getting. Was it a person who went through all this footage and measured it, or did you use some sort of automated tool? Yeah, so we developed some automated tools, and we used a couple of different techniques. One was looking at how bright the pixels in the video data were. So we compared the really bright pixels from the white foam of the breaking waves with the darker pixels of the rock platform. And that worked most of the time. But in some instances, when it was a really bright day and the rock platform was really lit up, we found that that didn't work so well. And so we then also had to apply another method where we used the warmth of the pixels. So the rock platform, when it's really bright, is a really warm, bright color. Whereas the waves, when they're really bright in the video footage, are a cool, bright color. So it's like a really bright, bluish white versus a really bright, slightly reddish tinged white. Yeah, right. That's really cool. Yeah. And so it meant that we could analyze data from every single daylight hour for eight months. So it was a huge amount of data that we collected. We captured 20 minutes of two snapshots. Our video data wasn't quite like usual video data where you have 24 frames a second. We had two frames a second, but we measured for 20 minutes for every daylight hour for eight months. So we had an enormous amount of data. So going through it manually just wasn't going to be possible. So we had to develop these automated methods. It actually sounds like there would need to be a lot of technology in the work that you're doing, even just from the perspective of it's such a big scale that you're working with, like one person manually measuring stuff, like by and large, wouldn't be able to measure enough. Yeah, so we do, when we do field work, we tend to work in really big teams, partly for the practicalities of it. You know, a lot of our instruments are big or heavy or bulky, and you need more than one person to carry them or to set them up. Also for safety reasons, you know, when you're working in an environment like the surf or on a rock platform where waves are present, it's really critical to make sure that you're managing those safety issues. But we also tend to share data sets, you know, so I might do an experiment in Australia and a colleague might do an experiment in the UK. And because we have different types of environments, we can use those two data sets to look at how those different environments generate different types of conditions and how the waves differ and how the beaches differ and things like that. So it's definitely collaborative science, particularly if you're involved in field work. If you're more on the modeling side of things, you might tend to work a little bit more on your own, but it still tends to be a very collaborative field in general. That's awesome. And I'm just sort of thinking about how different beaches would be around the world because we sort of associate in Australia beaches with this sort of like nice clean sand and stuff, but that's not the same globally at all. No, absolutely. And even in Australia, we have a huge diversity of beaches. You know, most of the beaches that we think about in Australia, the beaches that we see on the sort of east and southeast coast, because that's where the majority of our population is, 
So, you know, we think about the beaches like Bondi and the Gold Coast, which are beaches with sand on them that have a reasonable wave climate, you know, wave heights, sort of average wave heights about one and a half metres and a tidal range that's between one and two metres. So we have pretty consistent conditions around the east and southeast coast of Australia. But if you go up to the north of Australia, you have really different conditions around the Northern Territory and northwest Western Australia. In some places, really big tidal ranges. Around Broome in Western Australia, the tidal range gets up to almost 11 metres, and we tend to have much smaller waves. So rather than the waves being the dominant process driving what's happening on the beach and creating change and eroding the sand off the beach and so on, we see that the tides start to play a much bigger role in shaping the type of beach that we get. Because we have these different conditions and because we're in a different part of the country, we also tend to have different types of sediment on the beach. So on the east coast, we tend to have primarily sand. But on some of the beaches up in northern Australia, particularly um, some of those on the northern Queensland coastline where they're relatively sheltered from the waves because of the Great Barrier Reef, we see beaches with mud on them, which is really foreign for most of us in southeast Australia to see beaches with mud. If we go over to the UK, for example, they've got lots and lots of beaches that only have gravel on them. They don't have any sand at all. So there's this huge diversity of beaches that we see around the world, and we're really lucky to have a huge diversity of beaches here in Australia anyway. I'm really curious about that tidal range concept. Able to just define what tidal range actually means? Yeah, sure. So tidal range is the difference between the high tide and the low tide. So around the world, the gravitational pull of the moon and the sun on Earth pulls the water in our oceans around, and that generates the tides. Now, in most of the world, or a large part of the world, locations have two high tides and two low tides per day on most days. That's what we have around Sydney, it's what we have around Brisbane, most of the East Coast. In some locations around the world, they have a really different kind of tidal regime, and they only have one high tide and one low tide per day. But because of the shapes of the continents and the depths of the ocean, the tidal waves, and they're very, very distinct from tsunami, which are generated by underwater earthquakes or underwater landslides or underwater volcanoes, the tidal waves that we see moving about our ocean, they get distorted and shifted and pushed and pulled as they try to move around in the deep oceans and around the continents and so on. And as a result, we get differences in how big our tides are. So around Sydney, the tidal range, so the vertical difference between the low tide and the high tide, varies from about one metre to about two metres. Whereas, as I said before, in Broome, it can get up to 11 metres. And then some of the biggest tides can get up to sort of 14, 15 metres over in North America. That's huge. Yeah, yeah, they're really huge. And so they really radically change the landscape. You know, if you go down to Cable Beach in Broome at high tide, you have this sort of sandy beach that's you know reasonably steep and looks like a sort of beach that we might be used to on the east coast but probably with much much smaller waves and then if you go down at low tide there's this huge flat expanse of sand and you have to walk for hundreds of meters before you get to the water because the beach is so wide at low tide that would result in such a different ecosystem yeah absolutely you mentioned underwater landslides. Yeah. I think most of us probably are aware of earthquakes resulting in tsunamis. 
Is there an ex- like have you got an example of a landslide that's caused a tsunami? Yeah, so as you say, most people are probably more aware of underwater earthquake generating tsunami. So that's the mechanism that generated the 2011 Tohoku tsunami that had a devastating impact in Japan and the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami that, again, had devastating impacts all around the Indian Ocean. And by far, earthquake-generated tsunami represent the majority of tsunami that we see. It's about three quarters of tsunami. But big underwater landslides, and we're talking landslides that might be five kilometers long and five kilometers wide or tens of kilometers long and tens of kilometers wide can also generate tsunami. And there was one in 1998 in Papua New Guinea that uh, had a really significant impact there. And it was actually a bit of a complex process because it was a landslide that was likely generated by an earthquake. So there was an earthquake that caused the underwater landslide that then generated the tsunami. The work I'm doing in this space and my team is doing in this space is around looking at some of the uh, historic landslide scars that we actually see along the east coast of Australia. So from about Jarvis Bay up to Fraser Island, so covering roughly you know Sydney to Brisbane and a bit further, we see really big submarine landslide scars. So we can see these big chunks of our continental slope between water depths of about 200 to two and a half thousand meters, we can see big chunks of our continental slope missing. We can see the remnants of where these landslides have happened. And so we're looking at when they happened, how frequently they've happened, and what impact they might have on our coastlines and our coastal communities if an equivalent one were to happen again today. Well, that's interesting because we sort of think as Australia, we're kind of protected from tsunamis to some extent, largely by New Zealand, but they're quite close. Yeah, absolutely. They would be quite close. So as you say, we sort of think we're pretty immune to the impacts of tsunami. And even if there were to be a really big tsunami, either from any of the fault lines around New Zealand or even Chile, that was the last really big tsunami to impact Australia was a major earthquake off Chile in 1960. We would, one, probably not experience very large impacts. And two, we would have a really good warning time because those locations where those tsunami-generating earthquakes are happening are quite a fair way away, and so we have time to deliver warnings to our community so we can tell people to get off the beach and go to higher ground. The problem with the submarine landslide-generated tsunami is that they occur much, much closer to our coastline. So some of our modelling suggests that we might have a warning time of about 20 minutes, and that's really challenging for emergency management. The good news is that the data that we have so far suggests that these are relatively infrequent events. So we might see one on average every five to 10,000 years. So it's something to kind of be aware of, but definitely not something to be losing sleep over. Okay, so we don't need to run out and pack floaties just yet? No, definitely not. (laughs) How did people spot these scars? Because they're quite deep. Yeah, they're really, really deep. So One of the things that scientists who study the oceans do is they map the seafloor and they use techniques called multi-beam sonar. And so if anyone's ever been on a boat that had a fish finder or a depth sounder, it's the same kind of technology, but instead of just getting a single depth, we map what's called a swath, which is a sort of width either side of the ship. And depending on how deep you are, that can be from sort of a few tens of meters wide to a couple of kilometers wide. 
and we're mapping it in really high resolution. So we're trying to get a really clear picture of what the underwater on the seafloor looks like. You know, does it have canyons in it? Does it have mountains? Does it have submarine landslides? So we're looking at all of these different features that we see on the seafloor. And from that, we can learn things about the hazards we might experience, like submarine landslide-generated tsunami. And we can also learn things about the habitats that might exist down there, because certain organisms like to exist in certain types of habitats. You know, some organisms prefer rocky habitats and some prefer soft sediments. And so mapping our seafloor is really critical. Now, in Australia, we're really lucky we have a huge marine territory. We've got this beautiful marine territory with so many different environments that spans, you know, from up near the equator right down to the Antarctic. But it means that we have a huge mapping job ahead of us. I'm going out on the Australian Marine National Facility next year as part of this work. We're going to be at sea for nearly five weeks, over five weeks. And one of the things that we will be doing is helping map some of this seafloor that hasn't been mapped. So every time these vessels go out to sea, they try to fill in a bit more of the map and colour in a bit more of that picture of what we know our ocean floor looks like. That's going to be so much fun. It will be. It's a long time to be at sea, but it will be good. It is. Do you know approximately how much of Australian marine territory is mapped? The last estimate I know, which is probably a few years old, was about 25%. So it's not a lot and it's taken us decades to get there. Yeah, I think it's hard to overstate how challenging mapping the ocean actually is. It's really challenging and it's really time consuming. And to get those detailed maps that we get when we use multi-beam sonar requires a ship to traverse thousands and thousands of kilometers to map that seafloor. You know, it's colloquially referred to as mowing the lawn when you're at sea. Because if you're trying to map an area, that's literally what you do. You go up and back and up and back and up and back. The other way that we work out how deep the ocean is, is to use data from satellites. Depending on how strong the gravity is, we can infer how deep the ocean is. But the challenge with it is that it can be out by a really, really long way. And it can be out by hundreds of meters. So you might think that one part of the ocean is a thousand meters deep. But actually, it might only be 500 when you actually go there and map it with multi-beam rather than relying on that satellite data. I think on land, we're so used to having like super accurate maps all the time, having satellites be able to ping us and being used to the idea of being tracked and all that sort of stuff. And then it, you have to completely reassess all of that when you go out at sea. It's nowhere near as easy or as accurate from the satellites. Yeah, and in the areas where we don't have good data, we typically have one data point, so one depth for a square that's 250 meters by 250 meters. So we have one estimate of depth for that entire area. And if you're in some of these parts of the ocean where you have really complex morphologies, so canyons and things like that, one number does not suffice for an area that that's that's that large. No, just as it wouldn't on land. The same. Important to note that it's not actually just flat under the water. There's a lot going on there. There's so much going on, and there's so much, in a sense, more going on underwater than there is on land. You know, the deepest canyons are deeper than the highest mountains. And every type of shape of landscape that we see above the water, we see below the water as well. 
And it's so interesting when you look at these, when you're at sea and you get this data for the first time and you're looking at the shape of the seafloor in that detail for the first time. It's so exciting. It really, really is. That's genuine explorer kind of stuff. Exactly. You know, and everyone always says we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the depths of our ocean. And it's true. We're working on it, though. Absolutely, we are. What does an average day at work look like for you? So my days vary hugely, and particularly because I'm a field worker. So during the teaching semester, an average day pre-COVID is going into the office, getting ready to teach students, maybe giving a lecture, maybe giving a lab, you know, having students on computers and helping them learn something. If I'm doing field work, it probably means an early start, getting equipment ready, heading down to the beach or the estuary or wherever we're doing field work, putting instruments in the water, monitoring those instruments, making sure that everything's okay. If I've got students with me, making sure they understand what they're doing, making sure they're learning something making sure everyone's staying safe and working within our constraints. And then at the end of the day, it's generally the reverse. Get all the gear out of the water, pack it all up, take it home, clean it, make sure we get all the salt off it, and then start to download data off our instruments. And then if I'm doing research in the office, you know, analyzing the data that we've collected during the field trip, it's sitting at a computer, crunching numbers and making figures and graphs and plots. So my job is really varied, and I really enjoy that about it. When I've been doing research for a really long period of time, I'm really excited to get back into teaching. And when I've been focused on teaching for a period of time, I'm always excited to have time to do research again. I like the combination of the two, and I really like that they feed off each other. You know, when I teach stuff, I learn something, because the best way to you know, learn something is to teach it. And then I can use the outcomes from my research to make sure that my teaching is completely up to date with all the new discoveries that scientists are making. And there's some very lucky students getting to learn the cutting edge, I reckon. Yeah, look, I I really enjoy it. I really enjoy the teaching aspect of my job. That moment when you're in a lecture theatre or in a classroom and you explain something to a student and you see their face change, you see the light go on in their head, that's a really exciting moment. It's still really satisfying years after I've started doing it. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, that's probably the highlight of teaching is when you can see the dots being joined and, oh, this is real. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly with a lot of the teaching I do, you know, it's it's interpreting landscapes. We go out and we look at the beach and we look at what landforms we see on the beach. And from that, we can infer what's happened to the beach in recent days, weeks and months, even years sometimes. And then taking students out after they've had those first experiences and saying, have a look at this environment, tell me what you see, you can see them looking at things in a whole different way. And that's really satisfying. Teaching and supervising postgraduate students is also really, really satisfying because you see a student grow from an undergraduate student who can complete an assignment, but they're not necessarily fabulous at thinking independently and delivering a research project to a student who is an independent researcher who knows more about their topic than you do. And that's really satisfying as well. Do you mind talking a little bit about the analysis that you do? What techniques do you use? How does that work? Yeah, so it really varies depending on what we're doing, what type of analysis we use. You know, we use a whole bunch of different things. A lot of what we do is really numerical. So we're using coding, whether it's MATLAB or Python or another type of coding language to process all the data that we get. 
because often when we go and do a field experiment, we put out lots and lots of instruments and they're recording maybe 10 times a second, maybe 50 times a second. And we might go out for eight hours a day for five days in a row. And you can, you know, we might have 20 instruments out. So you can really easily do the sums and work out how many numbers we end up with. So lots of it is writing bits of code to analyze and simplify that kind of data, that really raw data to give us information about what size the waves are, how big are they, how are they changing, how is their speed changing, how is their height decreasing as they break and continue to break as they move across the surf zone. We often also use video cameras uh, in our work, and so we're doing similar things. We're you know, using those images that we get out of the video cameras to do things like measure where the waves are getting to on the beach or on the rock platform, depending on the project, and get a feel for what we're really often trying to do is understand how one process affects another process. So for example, if we have bigger waves in the deep ocean, how does that affect how far up the beach the waves get to? If we have a beach that has slightly coarser sand on it than another beach, how does that affect how the waves behave and change? So a lot of it is trying to sort of tease out different pieces of the puzzle. I have never thought about grain size of sand influencing anything, actually, other than whether or not it squeaks. <laughs> well, that's a really interesting question because the answer to does sand squeak or why does sand squeak is no one knows. But grain size, the size of the sand that you have on a beach is actually really influential on changing the type of beach that you get. So if you have a beach system that has, if you, let's say you have two beaches and they both experience exactly the same type of waves and one beach has coarser sand than the other, so bigger grains of sand. The beach that has the coarser sand will be steeper than the beach that has the finer sand, even if the waves are identical. And it's because of the way sand behaves in these environments. I'm going to have to go and do some investigating. Yeah. I've got some beaches to look at. <laughs> the challenge with this kind of stuff is that we have so much diversity in our natural environments. So finding ideal scenario where you have two beaches that experience exactly the same types of waves but have different sand sizes is actually really hard to come across in nature exactly because our waves are so variable all the time and also as i said before our tides are really variable around the planet so one of the things people in my field do often is they do lab experiments and we have wave tanks so they're like a really really big fish tank they're often really long and at one end, you have a pile of sand in the shape of a beach, and you fill the tank up with water. And at the other end, you have a really big paddle that moves back and forward and generates waves. And you can see how the beach will respond to those waves. In Australia, we only have relatively small wave flumes, you know, tens of meters long. The biggest one in the world is in Germany, and it's 350 meters long. And it's really deep, and you can make waves that are really like life-size waves. In it and they're really cool facilities. I've seen the one at UNSW but I didn't realize there was one that big in the world. Yeah I was really lucky during my PhD to spend some time at UPC in Barcelona and they have a wave flume that's 100 meters long and five meters deep and you can make waves in the flume that are about one one and a half meters at the break point so at the point where the waves turn over and break 
And that's just so exciting to be able to control what sort of waves you have and control what shape the beach is and then see what the waves do to the beach. And then you can empty the tank out and you can shovel the sand around and change the shape of the beach and fill the tank back up and run waves at the beach again and see how the beach changes. And that's that's really cool. That's awesome. And it also scratches that sort of like miniature itch where people like make miniature houses and all that sort of stuff. You can make your own miniature beach. Exactly. How have you ended up in this job? Like what was your path, say, from high school to where you are now? Yeah, so I've always had an interest in science. I liked science and I liked maths going through school. And so a career in something related to those things was always, or or doing something in those fields was always something that was likely to happen that I was interested in. Initially, I was a bit interested in medicine. And then I went on a family holiday to the Great Barrier Reef in uh, when I was 14, and I learned to scuba dive. I've always loved being in and around the ocean. And when I did that, I thought, I want to be a marine scientist. I want to be a marine ecologist. I want to study the coral reef. It's so beautiful. It's so interesting. And I actually held on to that until I got to uni, and I enrolled in a Bachelor of Science in focusing in marine science at the University of Sydney. And I did that degree. And about halfway through that degree, as part of the degree program, I had to do some courses in oceanography. And I was like, wow, this is so interesting. You know, at high school, we generally do biology, chemistry, and physics, but I'd never really done any earth science. I'd never really done any environmental science. And suddenly this sort of world was opened up to me that you can study the ocean, you can study the waves, you can study the currents and the tides, and you can study the landforms that we see on our coasts and in our oceans. And I was really hooked. And I did an honours project looking at how waves change after they break and how their height gets smaller and smaller as they continue to break and move towards the beach. And I really liked that. And I got to do field work during my honours project. And I was like, well, this is cool. I'm working and going to the beach. I mean, what more do you want in life? So I did a PhD looking at how waves change after they break and how far up the beach the waves get after they've broken. And again, I really enjoyed it. I got to do lots of field work in my PhD, had a great time. I enjoyed the data analysis side of things. So it was all really, really good. And I also did some tutoring during my PhD and I really enjoyed the teaching side of things. And so from there, it kind of just was the natural choice to go into an academic job where I, got, where I can mix those research and teaching interests of mine. Were there any particular points along that journey whether there were science camps or teachers or those things, because our careers and our journeys are not always as smooth as we tell in one story and we sort of need to be encouraged a bit. Were there any particular moments which like really spurred you along? I think for me, my honours year was really significant because I had that sort of feeling of this is so interesting and I remember one of my housemates in my honours year on a Friday night being like, Hannah, come on, we're going out, let's go. And I was like, no, I've got this data analysis to do. I want to know what the outcome of this data analysis is. And I think that's when you know you're hooked, when you're turning down offers to go out on a Friday night to sit in front of your computer and write code to find out what the answer to that question you want to know the answer to is. And so I was really hooked then. And what I spend my time doing now as an academic is different to what you do in honours because in honours you spend 100% of your time really doing a research project, at least in, in a science degree. As an academic, a very small proportion of my time is actually spent sitting there writing code, doing data analysis. But 
that passion is still there and I get to instill that passion in my students and particularly my PhD students. And that's just fabulous. And I get to share that passion because they're there because they're passionate about it as well. And there's nothing more energizing than seeing young, intelligent, energetic people who are maybe a little bit less cynical or jaded coming up through and sharing their like just joy. Yeah, absolutely. And you get to share those really exciting moments with them. Like when they complete a piece of analysis for the first time and they come to you and they're like, look what I've found, you know, and you can say to them, you're the first person in the world to know this. That's just so exciting, you know, and I've had a PhD student just this week have her first paper accepted. You know, that's such a milestone. It's so exciting to share that with your students and to enjoy those moments with them and share that mutual passion for research. Have you got any advice that you would give to a young person who's listening to this and is like, that sounds like it could be a cool path for me? Like any advice for them? Yeah, I would I would just say to take all the opportunities that come your way. I volunteered on so many field trips for so many other people during my honours year and my PhD. And I've even as a researcher, you know, it's it's great to be able to collaborate with other people and do field work with them. I did a really varied number of subjects at university. I did everything from sort of volcanology to zoology. And, you know, I think doing that really varied range of subjects within my science degree really helped me know, okay, this is what interests me. It's the coasts and the ocean and the physical processes that are happening in those environments. That's what really excites me and really interests me. And it's not that volcanology and zoology aren't interesting. They are. And there's so many fascinating things happening in those disciplines, but they just don't capture me the way that coastal and ocean stuff does. And I think the other advice I would give to young people is do something that you are really passionate about. Because if you are really passionate about it, it'll come through in your work. And it will come through in what you do and how well you do and really back yourself in that way. I think they're all wonderful pieces of advice, but you can tell when someone doesn't really care and they're doing a job, like in any job, really. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's really important. If you try lots of things, find out a whole lot of them aren't for you, but following the passion. Yeah. You spend too much time at work to be doing something that you're not passionate about. And, you know, I'm lucky I've got the job that I want. And not everyone is that lucky. But even if I didn't have this job, I think I'd still be trying to find or do something within this sphere. You know, whether that would be working in a government agency or in, a, in an environmental company doing, you know, working with local governments to help develop management plans for their coasts or something like that. You know, I would be still working within this sphere. And that's just as important thing as well, is that it's not that there's one path, like there's going to be a whole lot of different avenues. No, absolutely. You know, and I went off and worked in federal government. I worked at Geoscience Australia, our federal uh, earth science agency for a year. And I really enjoyed that. And I learned a huge amount during my time there. And I made fabulous connections and some really good friends. But at the end of it, I was like, well, I really miss teaching. You know, so I wanted to come back into the university sector so that I could teach. And have this wonderful sort of balance of all sorts of different things in your job. It's very cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the variety of it. Is there any citizen science programs that people who can't stop and do a PhD, etc., but would like to contribute to? Is there any citizen science in this? So one of the more recent 
citizen science initiatives that was actually developed uh, here in New South Wales. It was a collaboration between our state government environment coastal science team and some scientists at the University of New South Wales is a program called CoastNet where you can take photos of a beach and in, in some beaches around Australia, they've actually put up little mounts where you can put your camera in the mount and you take a photo of it and you upload it to social media and it gets picked up and it gets used in a database to look at how beaches change through time. So it's compared to other photos. So that's a nice little, you know, neat and easy science, citizen science initiative for people to be a part of. That's fantastic. That's so easy. Yeah, exactly. It's very close to what people would be doing anyhow. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Are there any myths or misconceptions that you would like to take this opportunity to squash? I guess one thing that immediately came to mind is I often say I'm a marine scientist and people immediately turn around and go, oh, you're a marine biologist. And people think of that, you know, they think on marine science, it's dolphins and whales and coral reefs and fish. But there is so much more to marine science than those disciplines. And they're really super interesting disciplines. But there's the kind of stuff that I do, so the physical processes, the waves, the tides, the currents. Then there's stuff like the chemistry of the ocean. How does the chemistry of the ocean change? There's stuff about how does the ocean interact with the atmosphere? So there's a huge range of marine science out there, not just marine biology. So I think that's one myth. That's a good one. Yeah. And then the other myth that often comes up is people think that beaches are relatively stable environments, but they're not. They're so dynamic. They change all the time and they change on different timescales. So from one day to the next, you might see a small amount of change. From one year to the next, you might see a much larger amount of change. And some beaches, you know, have sort of summer winter cycles where you typically get more sand on the beach in summer and less in winter. And then others have long-term cycles. So maybe they're slowly gaining sand over time and building outwards and outwards and outwards whereas others are doing the reverse and slowly losing sand over time. And so we often think that, you know, we go down to the beach and it'll be kind of the same as when we went down there last time, but that's, that's really not the case. They're just these really interesting dynamic environments where everything is constantly changing. Because I think we can be quite shocked if we go down the beach and there's been, particularly if there's been a sudden erosion event and there's less sand and you're just like, what happened? Like the government should do something. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the challenges in that space is that it's much, much faster for sand to be taken off a beach, so for the beach to erode, than it is for the beach to recover from that erosion event. So the timescales are really different. Recovery takes a whole lot longer. But we also need to just remember that these aren't static environments. And, you know, in the same way that an area of bush or forest isn't always going to be the same every time you go, even if, you know, there's no human interference in that environment, it's going to vary. It's going to change. It's going to change with the seasons. It's going to change with the years. And so we see the same kind of thing on our beaches. I think it could also be a bit more shocking on the beach because we put hard infrastructure. So we put in things like pylons of concrete and that sort of stuff. And then when they get eroded underneath, it's a bit confronting to see that oh, these things aren't permanent. Like even though we're putting concrete, it still might go away one day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that is, is often really challenging for people is that particularly in Australia, so much of our culture, so many people spend so much time on the beach. You know, it's really a big part of our national identity. You know, most people are 
beachgoers. They're interested in being in the ocean. They're surfers. They're swimmers. Kids grow up by the beach building sandcastles. It's so much a part of our national culture that when we go down and the beach looks really dramatically different and it's it's a whole lot narrower and it, it looks like it's been really damaged by a storm event, it's actually quite a challenging thing to see. But we really just need to remember that these are dynamic environments and that they change a huge amount. And that, as you say, you know, often we've put in these bits of infrastructure, whether it's a seawall or whether it's you know, a reef or something like that, that can also have a really big impact on the dynamics of that environment and how the sand moves around. And so we need to accept that these are dynamic environments and that they will change with time and that they also will change with sea level rise and climate change. I was about to say, and it's okay that they change, but obviously <laughs> sea level rise and climate change is a bit less okay. Yeah, so we know that in a large number of places around Australia, we will expect our beaches to narrow with sea level rise. But there's still some uncertainty around how much that will happen. But we do know that there will be impacts. And so really, we need to do what we can to address climate change and to minimise sea level rise because we've set a ball rolling. And even if we were to turn off all carbon emissions tomorrow, we will still see significant sea level rise because that process has started. That ball is already going. And so we will experience those impacts. So as well as doing you know, everything we can to minimise climate change, we also need to be thinking about, okay, how are we going to adapt? How are we going to adapt our lifestyles? How are we going to adapt our infrastructure? How are we going to help our environments adapt to these changes that are going to happen? Yes. I think more confronting imagery of beaches is probably still to come. Yeah, definitely. We will see more severe impacts. And for the most part in Australia, compared to some other countries around the world, we're doing relatively well, but we do have spots where we're already seeing really significant problems with erosion on our beaches and also significant problems with inundation in our estuaries. So when we have really high water levels in our estuaries, we see flooding around people's private property, around critical infrastructure like roads, and that's also going to be really problematic going forwards with sea level rise. I feel like there's a whole other podcast just in that topic, to be honest. There is, and I'll happily talk to you about it. <laughs> Finishing up this podcast, though, is there anything else we haven't talked about that you would like to touch upon? The only other thing that comes to mind is the fact that you know earth science is traditionally a really male-dominated discipline, but there are some great initiatives happening to try to encourage more women and girls to get into earth science and environmental science and particularly coastal and marine geoscience. And it would be great to see more young women and girls embracing this discipline and embracing the really exciting career opportunities that it has. And you get to spend a lot of time at the beach and thinking about the beach. So surely that's got to be a pretty big like sweetener. <laughs> Absolutely. I think so. I think it's a fabulous selling point. Start with that. Yeah. Do you want to be paid to go to the beach for your job? And then the fact that you might be the first person to see something or like, I don't know, you might solve all sorts of world problems. I mean, they can come second and third. First, you get to go to the beach for money. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's nothing quite like that joy of discovery that comes with research. Uh, yeah. Being the first person to see something, know something, and then get to tell people about it. That's pretty awesome. It's really exciting. 
So this is not just for the boys. Definitely not. Can't let the boys just have the beach to themselves. No. Do you have a shout out or a virtual high five? Someone you think is doing something awesome and just deserves all the virtual COVID safe high fives. I'm going to give a shout out to all the PhD students out there doing their PhDs in a pandemic. A PhD is an insanely difficult thing to do. It is isolating at times. It's challenging. You are trying to learn so much in such a short period of time and produce a thesis. And, you know, everyone has life happen around them during their PhDs as well. And to add a global pandemic on top of that, I take my hat off to every PhD student out there who is getting anything done at this time. I really, really do. I think you're all awesome. Thank you. That is such a beautiful shout out. Uh, Look, I just think, you know, I see it in my PhD students. I see them struggling with the challenges. You know, I'm struggling with the challenges. I think everyone is, right? But I think a PhD is just such a hard thing. And then to have a global pandemic on top of it, so tough. Well, you'd think like a PhD is just as hard as it can get. It's like moving house. There's two things that I can think of where they're just like, they're horrible anyhow. Well, not that all PhDs are horrible, but they have their horrible times and or challenging times. And then it turns out there is a way of making it harder and that's you add a global pandemic. <laughs> yeah, look, so I think, you know, PhDs can be some of the best experiences of your life, but also some of the most challenging because you are trying to do so much and learn so much. And really, ultimately, you have to go from really not knowing very much about one particular subject to being an expert on that subject. You know, you need to know more about your particular topic than anyone else in the world because you have to do novel research on it. And so to be doing that in the current climate is just amazing. Respect. Totally. Respect normally, but extra respect right now. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Hannah. This has been absolutely wonderful. I think we've got something for everyone here and this has just been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Amelia. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks.